With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This is Great British Bosses from Anything But Footy, the podcast taking you behind the scenes of sport in this country. Talking to the people whose job it is to ensure there's places for you to play, that it's safe to do so, and helping our elite players become the best in the world too. When lockdown started to be eased in mid-May, golf was one of the first sports to restart, and it's had a surge of interest ever since. I'm Michael. And I'm John, and between us we have 50 years of radio and broadcasting history. We've covered all the major sporting events in the past 10 years, like the London and Rio Games, the Commonwealths, Wimbledon and the Rugby World Cup. But can golf capitalise on the increase of people playing? Are there too many rules and regulations that mean as a sport it's not relevant and representative to the communities up and down the country we live in? In this episode, we hope to find out as we talk to the new man in charge whose job is simply to grow the game. Hello, my name's Jeremy Tomlinson. I'm the CEO for England Golf. Jeremy, we'll start by taking you back to the beginning of 2020. You come into England Golf, your new role as CEO in January of this year. And then within weeks, you're having to shut down 1,800 golf clubs. Baptism of fire, challenging time for you, I imagine. Most definitely. Yes, I, um, I started my new role on, on the 6th of January, which is my birthday. So, uh, so I sort of hoped that that was going to be a lucky start to, to, to my tenure. But uh, um, things did start well. But within nine weeks, as you say, um, we had the, uh, on, on fact, March the 23rd, we had the situation where we needed to shut all 1800 uh, golf clubs in England. So uh, as you'd imagine, my phone was... Uh, red hot with texts from, from pals and associates alike going, well done, nine weeks into the role and, and you've shut the whole country down. So that was the lighter side of the decision, of course, or, 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 or outcome of the decision. How do you go about closing 1,800 golf clubs? That's one mass email to send, isn't it? And to someone that perhaps hasn't met and engaged with all these people because you were so new in the role technology takes over at that point we have um obviously through dealings with with uh with with every county up and down the land 30 the 34 counties plus of course every golf club we have all of the details we have contacts through through general managers through committee members through volunteers so it was a a, a mass email it was a mass statement which obviously was backed up with uh, with, with an announcement um on our own website um, basically stating um, that all golf clubs had to shut with immediate effect. And at that point, Jeremy, once everything was closed, you just put your feet up? <clears throat> Far from it. it in fact, it, it, was, it was a trail of peaks and troughs, um, whereby to start with, we had an incredible uh, deluge uh, of inquiries, people just going, okay, we've shut our course, what do we do now? And that went on for the first two or three weeks where we were getting in uh, three, 400 calls a day, 
literally from people just saying, well, what do we do now? What do we do with our staff? What do we do with our, with our golf course? So that was a very intense period. And um, throughout our team, we have uh, a team of uh, club support officers and partnership managers that their predominant role is to, is to be there for golf clubs and for golfers. And pretty much we were just rushed off our feet, just trying to answer those simple questions. Uh, but it did, you know, after those first two or three weeks, things settled a little bit. The furloughing scheme came in and golf clubs were able to, to, to have taken a breath and, and also to, to sort of put their, their, their hands around expenditure um, at their golf clubs and go, okay, fine. It, it potentially isn't the end of the world. We now need to see if we can navigate our way through this. And, and, and that next period began. And it, it was quieter, um, uh, literally then filtrated, of course, by, by then government announcements. When did you know that golf was going to be, along with tennis, the first sport back? Well, we, uh, considering I think the whole lockdown or the whole shutting down of golf, uh, golf clubs in England lasted for seven weeks, it, it felt like so much longer, of course. But I would say... Uh, Three weeks, um, three weeks uh, from the decision to, to open golf, being, being able to op open golf clubs again, which I think came on May the 10th. Uh, that was when the, the, the Prime Minister made his announcement for, for the 13th of May, in fact, when the clubs were able to open. We had put forward uh, a document put together by the, the, the home nations, um, the RNA and uh, the PGA, which was a 50-page document on how we believed that we could operationally open golf up again. We believe we put forward uh, very strongly the fact that golf was a, a naturally socially distancing sport and that we felt that it was right and appropriate. It was good for not only a physical well-being of many, many people up and down the country for them to be able to play again, but also from a mental perspective, from a mental uh, wellness perspective. So we put forward this 50-page document, which I, I hasten to add was, um, was uh, very, very well received by uh, DCMS, by the, the Department of DCMS uh, in government, uh, who in fact utilized uh, that document with regards to other sports as an example um, of how operationally you can plan to, to, to return. Um, it was well received. We then found out, I, I then was given a nod that we were probably about a week to a week and a half before that we were being favorably looked at um, and then pretty much it was on that afternoon that I received through a text going, get ready. And, uh, that, that was just great news. Jeremy, what was most important for you? Was it to just get players back playing golf or you talked about the furlough scheme as well? We all know that the business of the golf club is not just the golf. It's the hospitality. It's the bars. It's the meals. It's, it's the golf shops as well. What was, what was the priority for you? Is it, getting just people back out playing or was it securing the future of your clubs and, and the members that play there? That's a really good question. It, it was really all of the above because obviously we need places and you mentioned it in your intro. We have to have places. We have to have courses and clubs where people can go and play, whether they're members of golf clubs or not. So it's essential that there is a viability to, to the ongoing success, the ongoing um, financial stability of our golf clubs up and down the country. So we really, as we looked, as we looked at everything, we, we wanted to get the golf courses, the golf clubs open. And we wanted to do it in a way that we could get golfers back in. Now, once we did that, it meant that we could then 
thrash through and look to support with golf clubs how they actually went about how we navigated again back to this roadmap back to some sort of normality but we needed to get the golf courses open first we needed golfers back there first we needed to keep to uh, uh, create some other income streams to try to replace what had been lost um, and, and, and of course it happened come May the 13th and to be honest we were hoping we had fingers crossed that it would be a successful return and um, I wouldn't be understating in saying it's been overwhelming the success of the return to golf so far in many, many aspects. Of course, there are still some income streams that haven't been fulfilled, but in many other areas, uh, it's been a glut. It's been really, really good. It's been fantastic to watch. So you're the CEO of England Golf, the governing body for amateur golf in England. You're dedicated to growing the game, but can you give us a bit more of an overview then of what your, your role and your responsibility is? Sure. Um, well, again, this growing the game statement is one I've been in the golf industry for over 30 years. And it's a statement that I feel gets sort of banded around a bit. And it can mean anything almost. Um, but certainly from an England golf perspective, I, I would say for us, uh, our role, our duty is to make sure that we drive participation, that we do that with great core values. We do that with... Um, with equality, with diversity, inclusivity, we do it in a safe fashion. So we really want to drive participation, whether it be from, from recreational leisure side, all the way through to, to the membership side, where again, we want to try to inspire and educate people into becoming members of golf clubs and really becoming part of the community. So those are two major areas. Now driving that, um, you know, we have some 640,000 members of golf clubs. On top of that, we would have somewhere between 1.6 to 2 million independent golfers and then perhaps another couple of million people that, that would uh, involve themselves at, at pitch and putts or driving ranges or, or, or putting greens, that ilk. So we have a lot of people um, that, that in some way, shape or form need, need governance. Um, so we do that again. We would look at safety. We would look at disciplines. We would look at structures at golf clubs. We look at supporting and, and, and how we can create a situation where more people can just have, have that opportunity to get out and enjoy the game at whatever standard they are. And we mentioned that you started on your birthday uh, in 2020. Um, why take the job though, Jeremy? You mentioned you'd worked in golf for, for 30 odd years, managing director, uh, run your own company. Um, you worked also for a sales manager for Callaway Golf, one of the most recognized names in golf. Why want to lead the amateur group in England? Um, again, a, a really good question. I think it was uh, my, my career, as I said, I, I originally started off, I was turning pro at uh, Marlborough Golf Club, my home club, and um, I got offered a role as a, as a salesman for Titleist, and I literally, I flipped a coin, and um, the, the coin came up heads, and I became, I became decided, right, okay, I'm going to become a, a, a sales rep for Titleist. Um, again, a phenomenal brand. And I, and I, went, I went and worked there. I then had a, had a career, moved from Titleist to Callaway, set up my own company, and then came back to actually head up the, the Titleist and Footjoy brands um, across Europe uh, for the Akushner company. So I had a wealth of experience there, some 30-odd years, as I said. On top of that, I've been playing golf since the age of seven, and I'd had the good fortune to become re reasonably good. 
Um, I'd gone through from being a junior through to a, to a youth, through the full member at club, then represented my county and then my region. Uh, unfortunately, I never became good enough to, to represent nationally, but, but you know, I, got, I became, got pretty close. So I did all of those things. So I had the playing, I had the love of the game, and I had uh, working in it from a commercial perspective. Um, by the time I'm, I'm sort of, I'm 53 now, I had the opportunity to go for this role as CEO of England Golf. And it seemed like a real natural, um, a natural role to try to go after, to aspire to, simply because it meant that I could then embellish uh, my commercial experience with my love and passion for the game, with learning how to, 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 um, uh, to take part in the governance of the game and to get involved in a different level and to be more representative with regards to the sport. So it, it was one that I, I grabbed with both hands and I, I'm still, despite that baptism of fire, I, I'm loving every day of my job. And you mentioned the experience in the commercial side. Does that then actually give you an advantage to grow the game with the pandemic hopefully moving away from us and moving behind us? That actually you can focus and bring your experience to help clubs, as you say, have a future? Yes, I, I believe so. Um, working for the, the, the Titleist and Footjoy brands gives you a very wide distribution. So I'm used to dealing with many, many golf clubs anyway. Um, I had the good fortune of, 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 rep, of playing representative golf. So again, I had experiences from there. So mix that in with, and, and we need to be honest here, you know, the pandemic that nobody would ever wish for um, has resulted in, in, in a, a bit of a boom for golf since May the 13th, in excess of 20,000 new members at golf clubs since that date, uh, and many, many more people wanting to take it up because potentially they can't do their, the sport of their, their current sport of choice. So we've had that boom, but what we've got to make sure is, is that we come out of this with substance and that we make sure that we retain as many of those new members as possible, we retain as many of the new participants as possible, and we make sure that golf is seen as in, in the most relevant light as a sport, as a top five sport in this country for everybody. It's for all ages, no matter what your gender, no matter uh, what, what your ethnicity. Golf should be and is a sport for everybody. And, and we want as many people as possible to come and participate in the sport. You're listening to Great British Bosses from Anything But Footy. We're talking golf with the CEO of England Golf, Jeremy Tomlinson. You talk about inclusivity, uh, Jeremy, there, and you talk about the boom that you've had sort of post-lockdown with people coming to golf courses. One of my main memories, experiences, if you like, of going into a golf club was being told off because my shirt was hanging out of my trousers. Now, the popularity of golf was declining ahead of the pandemic. So, you know, does that concern you that the golf clubs still maybe have those kind of attitudes that I, as a grown up, was, was getting told off? Did I deserve my telling off? <laughs> a couple of points that you made there. The first one is I, I don't agree that golf, from a participation perspective, was, was, uh, was falling back. Okay. Um, membership numbers were falling and they had been for a certain number of years. And I, and I do believe because there was a value proposition there, 
um, with regards to being able to get cheap golf, with regards to being able to get onto golf clubs, had definitely uh, definitely affected that. But there were we, we know for a fact that the, from a participation perspective, more people than ever were actually playing golf in some way, shape, or form, whether that be at a driving range or, or independently. You then come on to another point: the golf golf gets labelled with. Um, this it's an easy label that's put that there's a thread that's pulled upon very quickly with regards to etiquette with regards to dress codes um i can't say that, that you could walk into every golf club and they would be open-minded enough to go yep you're fine there in your shorts and jeans and t-shirt but i would say that golf is changing and it's definitely changing for the better more and more uh, golf clubs and golfers and members of golf clubs realize that golf needs to be relevant it needs to have a more open mind and uh, as much as um whether you deserve to be told off or not i i i'm sure you didn't but <laughs> but i i i just think golfers quite rightly are becoming more open-minded and are certainly are not more inclusive and i but i do believe and i'll throw this in i do believe that there is a place at golf clubs for shorts and t-shirts and trainers just as much though as i believe there is a place at golf clubs for a collar and tie and a blazer uh, it is a sport steeped in tradition, and I don't think we should uh, we should just rubbish that that side of it because that's just as important. You're too polite, Jeremy, because only just met Michael, but he can be a scruffy so and so. Jeremy, is it right then that we have kind of men only days or, or men only clubs? Is that something that you are looking to change? Um, well, certainly throughout England, um, I think uh, that, that I don't believe there are any. Uh, men's only clubs um, and if the, the, the ones that are men members there are lady member clubs at the same at the same courses now so I think that that is a thing of the past and uh, being somebody who, who totally believes in equality um, and certainly um, total equality and certainly inclusive of gender equality I don't think um, I don't think there is a place for that but I do also think Equality is also about giving people a choice. And there are many uh, ladies that I know that want to play ladies' competitions and many men that want to play men's competitions. And I think as long as you have choice and not a dictation, then I think you have a healthy environment. And, uh, and again, I think golf has had to repair some, some, uh, some bad things for, from the past. Its tradition hasn't always been an equal past. But I do think we're... we're uh, we're a long way up the road now to equality, and which I think is a really good thing. And we're going to do everything we can to encourage that. And just quickly, a follow-up on that, Jeremy. You mentioned 20,000 new members. Have you been managed to look at who and, and what type of people they are? Are they just middle-aged men, which would be the cliche, or are they women golfers? Are they uh, people from different communities? I don't have the full figures. We're, we're in the process of carrying out that research right now, John. Um, but what I do know is that um, we can report up and down the country that a good percentage, and I'm hearing as much as a third of new members, are um, people aged between 20 to 35, which is fantastic. Um, and, uh, and certainly, uh, again, for, from, a, from a women's perspective, there are plenty of women golfers that, that I do believe have been encouraged and, and, and have actively put their hand up and said they want to become members. Um, members of golf clubs so yeah I, I think it's 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 definitely spreading and I think it really has been the lockdown uh, people, whether it's people just walking across beautiful golf courses there has been such an influx of people going you know what I really want to try this game I want to see what it's all about 
I mean, I can tell you the car parks around where I live uh, at the golf clubs are incredibly busy. And you drive past some of them and go, wow, yeah, that is, that is busy today, particularly um, on the nice sunny days that we have had. Just very quickly, is golf really golf post-COVID, Jeremy? Because I understand you can't touch the flagpole, so you get gimmies from about 10 yards. No, I'm joking. Um, and, and no rakes in the bunkers. So what, no bunker shots? I mean, this isn't golf, surely. Again, it's a, it's, a, it's a fair point. It's not golf as we know it or have known it per se, but um, certainly for, from a, very early on, on the return to golf, the whole flagstick situation was changed. And, and that, that came about because of hard surfaces. There was a belief that, uh, and there still is a belief, of course, that, that, that the um, COVID can be spread through touching um, hard surfaces. So we try to keep that down to a minimum. Um, what we do is there's either there are specially designed flags that have little pop up things that you can move with your club. So you don't need to give putts. And likewise, there are there are thinner flag sticks that, that will just remain in. We still have a, a guidance for play safe, stay safe. that You don't t- you don't touch a flag. You don't take the flag out. So people put foam in the bottom of the hole. And uh, so you hit your putt in. You don't have to lean down very far. Um, you put, just putt with the flag in. Okay, so we got round that one. So you don't. So we can still hold uh, competitions. With regards to bunkers, uh, many courses now are uh, um, making, uh, getting their members to purchase individual rakes, so they have their own rakes. We can do that uh, reasonably inexpensively for about ten pounds. Um, and other courses would just have a preferred lie in a bunker. So um, you, you, again, you can work round it. Where there's a will, there's a way. It's not golf as we knew it, but you know what? It's, it's, this is going to be with us for a while. So we can still, it's, it's still exciting. Jeremy, I know obviously your remit is to, as we've said, grow the game, look after the amateur game, but we've seen some terrific professional golf and some wonderful putting over the weekend, of course. Can golf carry on existing with, without crowds? Is it just the need for broadcast deals that will, will help expand the sport? I think it's, um, and part of my, my very steep learning curve has been um, being part of calls with other governing bodies and associations. And something that is absolutely prevalent is, is the fact that all sport needs crowds, all sports needs the commercial rights. Um, so the answer to your question is, uh, well, well, golf will continue. It will survive. But does it need crowds? Does it need uh, uh, that involvement, those commercial rights, absolutely it does. Yeah, we're the same as any sport. And yes, we do. And uh, But to see uh, Keith Pelly at, at the European Tour, he's just, I think the, the, the UK swing has just finished um, at, uh, at the Belfry. And again, what an incredible finish there. A great playoff. That They've done a great job so far, but I know that they are desperate to get the crowds back. And, and what a shame we had to cancel the Ryder Cup. Yeah, talking about, obviously, broadcast... And, and commercial deals. We've seen cricket recently return live cricket to terrestrial television. In your role, the fact that there is no live BBC coverage of four days of the Open, for example, which is a fantastic showcase, does that irk you in your role that people might not sit and watch someone win the Open on a Sunday afternoon and then think, you know what, on Monday morning, I want to go and play golf for, for Jeremy and his colleagues? Yes. <laughs> um, I thought it might <laughs> I'm a passionate golfer uh, I've always loved the sport throughout my life and I love I used to love watching it in BBC on the BBC I think Sky Television does a great job but 
to have had to have it on terrestrial television, I think would be uh, it would be fantastic to have more of it. There has been a bit uh, a bit shown. There, there was some of the uh, the the, um, the women's open um, recently, which was which at was midnight cool. though. The highlights. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to be positive here. I wish we, I wish it was on television more. I, I really do. I think I do believe it's a game for all ages, and I think when people can be inspired by the best players in the world, it's always a good thing. We mentioned about equality earlier and tying it in with TV. Is there a way where golf could, moving forward, become more equal? So men and women are playing together. You mentioned the Ryder Cup. Could we have a a competition like the Ryder Cup and the Solheim Cup combined, which would give the the broadcasters and other broadcasters, because I agree with you, Sky Sports does an amazing job, but gives other broadcasters the chance to show golf in a new way? I think you have to remain positive with any of those thought processes, John. Um, could, you, could you have a tournament or a competition that became as big as the Ryder Cup, uh, which is for men, or the Solheim Cup, which is obviously for, for women? I don't know. But do I think we should try? Yeah, absolutely, I do. I, I, and, um, you know, I think we should have... It's a real shame because for the first time... There, was going, there, there were going to be men and women competing against each other on European tour this year. Apology, it might not be for the first time, but certainly it was being, it was being brought back. And, uh, and I think there was a, a really good impetus and a good start again with regards to, to, um, uh, to, to men and women uh, playing, playing golf together. And um, yeah, I, I think we should keep trying and I, and I hope we do. Because we saw that with darts. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and I think as long as you... Uh, it, it can be shown in a way that appropriately shows off the best of women's golf and men's golf, um, whether that's competing against each other or alongside each other, that then I think, yeah, it has to be a good thing. And, 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 I, and I really hope we do it. Um, something, I mean, we made history this year. We played our first tournament back at the end of July was the English amateur. And uh, for the first time we played the men's and the women's at the same time at Woodhall Spa. And it was just the right thing to do. And it was organically, it felt right. And everybody just spoke about that week, that there was such a naturalness to it, that why hadn't we done it before? And we're certainly going to do it again. And we are an Olympic and Paralympic sport podcast. And of course, in Rio at the Olympics, there were equal men's and and women's tournaments, fantastic tournaments, especially, of course, for Team GB and Justin Rose. But I'm interested just in your thoughts, Jeremy, as someone that's played to a high level and and now administers the game. Does does golf need the Olympics? And second to that, does the Olympics need golf? Wow, what a huge question. Um, (laughs) And again, I am going to speak very humbly here uh, as a golfer because I know that there, there is a diverse opinion on this. Um, I'm a huge fan of the Olympics and I'm a very passionate golfer. So I believe that it's great to see golf at the Olympics. I really do. And um, to, see, uh, to see our man Justin Rose become an Olympic champion was fantastic. But also to see, um, I think it was Matt Kuchar, and uh, Stenson were, I think, the other, the other medalists, certainly in the men's, um, to see them be so proud of representing their, com- their countries. H- how can that be a bad thing? Um, and again, it, it shows golf in, in, in a correct light. It, it's, it should be there. It, it's, a per- it's a sport for everybody. And that gave a really, for, for people who ordinarily didn't watch golf, that 
gave them a bit of insight into it. And they could see that golfers are just, they're, they're good people. And of course, we saw in Rio a good person in Justin Rose um, winning that gold medal. Is it that maybe golf just needs one or two editions of the Olympics and then some of those top names that maybe didn't go to Brazil might think, yes, I want to go to Tokyo in 2021, Paris in 24 and Los Angeles in 28? Yeah, I think so. I think that that became very evident. I, I think there were a few people who decided that they didn't want to go to Rio for whatever reason, um, have already said that, they, that, that they're going to be competing for a place, uh, which is fantastic. And as your role at England Golf, Jeremy, do you have any selection uh, involvement with Team GB? How does that all work? The selection process for Team GB is, is, is very much done off world rankings. Um, so my uh, director of um, performance, Nigel Edwards, is, of course, the Team GB manager. Um, so and I sit on the, the, uh, the British Olympic Association, uh, the, the golf uh, uh, committee for the Olympics. Um, so that, that's pretty much the, the, uh, um, the selection process takes care of itself, as I say, through the world rankings. So uh, it, that's, that's done in, in, in a very substantive way. So Jeremy, you've said there's been a boon in participation since lockdown began to be eased. So how are you going to tap into that? What are we going to see from your organisation over the coming weeks or months to, to keep people on the golf courses? It's good, as you said, for physical and, and mental well-being. Well, I think there's uh, so one of the things that we're doing, we, we, we immediately wanted to tap into the, to the here and now. So um, we have launched a membership campaign um, called Membership Give It a Shot, which is basically has, has two spearheads. One is the, um, on, uh, for recruitment and, and the other one is for retention. Uh, because we obviously we want to continue to, 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 to grow the members at, uh, at golf clubs um, throughout this, this mini boom. But we also want to make sure that we retain them. Now, we can only do so much as a governing body. So for, on a national basis, we will look to inspire um, where we can uh, with, with, with regards to people either, as I say, from a participation and membership perspective. With regards to actually retaining those members uh, we really need that. That's where the golf clubs come into their own. And, and I really do think that a lot of golf clubs um, have seen, uh, like, like, well, up and down the country, have gone through a, the initial stages of lockdown, of being very fearful for existence and the future, to now going, hold on a second, we, we, have, a, we have a new wave of, of enthusiasm. Let's make sure that we're as relevant as possible. And I do think that that's uh, up and down the country. Golf clubs are looking at their value proposition with regards to how they how they portray their own membership, how they portray themselves from a family perspective, a community perspective, um, and really how they how they continue to be something to try to make themselves a no-brainer for people to want to be part of. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for your insight into how you are changing the game and how you are harnessing the game of golf at the minute. As you can probably tell, I'm a huge fan. I've really missed the Open this year, and I will miss the Ryder Cup as well. But Jeremy Tomlinson, CEO of England Golf, thank you very much for speaking to anything but footies, great British bosses. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you, Michael. Sports Social Podcast Network.